Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is David George Serdam, co-author of The Age of Ruth and Landis, The Economics of Baseball During the Roaring Twenties. It's a book he co-wrote with Michael J. Hoppert, who is a professor of economics at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure to do these interviews. Great. David is a professor of economics at Northern Iowa University and earned his PhD in economics at the University of Chicago in 1994. Uh, David, tell us about your educational background and walk us through the various stages of your career, uh, your senior thesis and your dissertation, if you would. Oh, be happy to. I graduated from Pleasant Hill High School and just outside of Eugene, Oregon, and then went to the University of Oregon and graduated from the Robert D. Clark Honors College with a degree in mathematics. I did a senior thesis on baseball run production, whereby we found that uh, using regression analysis that on-base percentage and slugging average explained a very high proportion of run production. Stolen bases didn't really have much explanatory power and, and neither did many of the other variables that we poured into the hopper. I went on after a, a brief period of working for the state of Oregon and being an insurance claim adjuster. I went to the University of Chicago and earned my master's and PhD in um, economics, working on a dissertation under Nobel Prize winner in economics, Robert Fogel, on the economics of the American Civil War, in particular with regard to the naval blockade. After a few years of teaching at Loyola, my mentor there and the, the department head suggested that I go into another field of study just to show that I could do more than Civil War. I jumped into sports since I knew a fair amount about it, having done the senior thesis, but also reading books on baseball history from a very young age and playing stratomatic baseball for a number of years. That's true. You did play stratomatic. I was an APA, APA baseball fan. You said you owned both games, right? Yes, I owned several games because I was always thinking about it. it might be kind of fun to create a game. I never got around to doing that. Uh, there was one outside of that came out of Waterloo, Iowa, which is right across the river, but I've never been able to find out who those people were. It was called Midwest Research. I don't know if you ever saw saw their advertisement back in the 70s. No, I didn't. I didn't. But it was somewhat similar to Stratomatic, except that you had to refer to charts. I, I think you had to refer to charts for every play in Atma, too, although I presume you memorized them after a while. Yeah, it's pretty much, unless you rolled like one of the, the bizarre numbers that had the weird play. And there was like one in 10,000 that had a, a very strange play, like hitting into a triple play or something. Oh, like that. okay. Now, is it okay to call you Bob? Sure, oh, okay. certainly. Um, okay, so would you say that uh, growing up you were more of a sports fan or an economics buff or a little bit of both? Um, how were you then as a child? Well, I rather hope no child grows up thinking about being an economist. It would be a rather strange child. <laughs> Although looking back at Christmas time when we get the Montgomery Ward Christmas wish book, uh, sort of a precursor to uh, Toys R Us where you and the kids can look, download what they want and people can buy them sort of a, a gift list. 
um, we would go through that. And I remember one year, I must've been about eight or nine thinking that my parents probably had about $15. Now this would have been back in the mid sixties, but that would have been roughly a hundred bucks today and thinking, well, I have roughly $15 to spend. And so that's very economic thinking. So I guess I was doomed to be an economist from an early age, but it is kind of a strange thing for a little kid to think about some sort of constraint on how much mom and dad were going to buy. But they were, um, they were masters at inculcating such little life lessons as there was only a limit on how much money we were going to, uh, how much money they were going to spend and things, which is very valuable. And you did play a little bit of sports as well, didn't you? Well, mostly pickup games. I, I'm only five feet, five and a half. And oh, okay. uh, so most of the big sports, most of the sports were out. You know, I love the story of you uh, finding the Macmillan Baseball Encyclopedia, I think, in the library. And I, myself, I used to take it – I had the original one from 1969. Mm-hmm. And we'd take it on long family vacation drives. And then my parents had a Volkswagen. I'd read it in the back seat. <laughs> oh, okay. So you must be roughly my age. I'm not going to ask you to divulge that. But uh, no, it was a wonderful – it was just a treasure trove. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, of course, it doesn't compare to the total baseball that uh, sadly is no longer printed. But it was still an awfully, awfully good start. The numbers were, were wonderful to look at. Definitely. Now, turning to your book that you co-wrote, uh, what intrigued you about the Roaring Twenties, particularly from an economic standpoint? The book was sort of a segue from the previous two books I did on Major League Baseball, the post-war Yankees uh, discussing 1946 to 64 baseball, and then wins, losses, and empty seats on baseball during the Great Depression. All I did was go back another decade on that. Of course, many of the characters are the same from the uh, Depression era, um, and so it was pretty easy to go back. The real reason that the books are possible is that there's a, a Congress investigated baseball in 1952, 51-52, and they, they forced the owner to divulge a, a fairly large amount of financial information that you rarely get, and that enabled... Um, me to do a lot of economic analysis on that. And then my co-author, Michael Halpert, has done a tremendous amount of work on baseball salaries because he, he looks at the salary cards they have on record at the Hall of Fame and also the Negro, Negro Leagues. So he he's uh, an expert on both those topics. So he was an obvious person to bring on to write a couple chapters in the book. And you guys met while you're actually looking through the microfilms or of the Yankees um, information. Is that right? We actually met um, at a workshop at Northwestern University, and, mm-hmm. and, and one of my, my mentor from Loyola said, well, this guy is presenting one, and come on up, and so I did, and uh, first I was a little bit worried that he might preempt what I was trying to do. He actually saw the data that they have at the Hall of Fame before I did. They have the uh, Yankees financial record from roughly 1915 to 1944. These include the actual payrolls. Every check written is a record, so you can see what the, what uh, people the Yankees were spending on. Uh, as Michael likes to point out, there are some checks that were written out to a detective agency. Apparently, the Yankees were tailing some of their players. That's There's true. also um, checks written to players before the season because they ran out of money and had to ask for an advance. So it's a fascinating uh, set of documents. Sounds like Babe Ruth. He was always asking for money in advance, and they were always tailing him as a, with detectives. Well, I ac- actually believe the people that were getting the money in advance were somebody else. Ruth was actually fairly canny with his money in the sense he loved to spend money, of course. But Christy Walsh, his agent, said, well, what we'll do is you can spend your paycheck because you see that in your hand. And 
we'll save all the money you make off the endorsement and thing. The money didn't necessarily go directly to Ruth. It went to Walsh. Walsh, fortunately, was an honest guy. He invested the money, so Ruth ended up being fairly wealthy. Maybe not wealthy enough to buy a team, but as some of today's stars are. But he did pretty well. And, and as I said, for a man who was not particularly highly educated, Ruth was pretty savvy. Having that agent was something that I don't believe very many players, if any player, had prior to um, to, to Christy Walsh. Right. You know, baseball is such an interesting business, and, and I guess some of the other leagues like this too, in the sense that every team owner's goal is to make money, but their success was really tied onto the other owners of the league, and I think you alluded to that in the book. Yes, it um, could be, to use an analogy somebody used for the Supreme Court, a nine scorpions in a bottle, I suppose you could say it was a 16-headed hydra since there were 16 teams back then. They are a mixture of cooperation, and competition. They have to cooperate because they have to set the rules, the schedules, and so on. But they compete for, as one owner said back at the turn of the century, they compete for games, they compete for players, and their goal is to crush each other. And yet they have this core of having to cooperate. So it's a very unique business model in American industries. Yeah, there was a quote early in the book that I found really interesting. The um, owner of the Chicago Colts, which later became the Cubs, um, James Hart, the owner, said, uh, he called baseball an antagonist business from start to finish. Do you think it was the same way during the 1920s, or has it always been that way? Well, that's pretty much the essence. It is an antagonistic business because there's only so many star players out there, and they're competing for them. Uh, but as I said, on the other hand, they also cooperate in ways that uh, very few industries are allowed to cooperate. Talking about the uh, microfilm research again, um, you, you mentioned a few things that were interesting. What were some of the really um, surprising things that you found in, in that um, in that research? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to think about what really surprised me. I guess I didn't go in there with a lot of uh, prior expectations on that. Um, it was surprising that the Yankees were pretty scrupulous in reporting Babe Ruth's uh, salaries. Everything everything that they had in the New York Times was accurate. And oftentimes, most players, most owners, they would kind of fudge the salaries. Sometimes they'd exaggerate them for some sort of purpose. Sometimes they'd, they'd lowball them and everything. But the, the New York Times pretty much had very accurate figures on Babe Ruth. My guess is that the, the Yankees owner found that very, very useful publicity. And the other owner probably thought it was useful that they were bragging about how much Ruth made because it didn't make them look as though they were chiseling the players as badly as they really were. Um, Joe Jackson, of course, is the poster child of the players who supposedly got chiseled. He, um, I think he was making five or $6,000 a year when people of his stature probably should have made ten or 11000 Now, market value, these players probably could have easily made tens of thousands of dollars but of course they weren't under market conditions because of the reserve clause jackson admitted in a court case later on that uh, he got cheated by comiskey because he couldn't read the contract although he was married to a literate woman so i don't know if he wasn't married to her at the time but later on his wife would look at the contract and everything so he was in sort of a unique situation but i'm assuming since i don't think he was a stupid man that he probably was somewhat suspicious and I would have thought he'd gone out and gotten somebody to look things over for him knowing that he couldn't read. 
unless he just simply was too ashamed to say he couldn't read. But that seemed to be a matter of uh, public record that everybody knew Joe couldn't read because the other players would taunt him on that, which is kind of cruel when you think about it. I was going to say the other savvy player during that era was Ty Cobb. I mean, that guy knew how to negotiate. Well, he didn't. He didn't because in the sense that uh, he had to fight to get past ten or $15,000 a year, and then in the wake of the Federal League, he got bumped up to twenty, and he stayed there, I think, for a number of years. And then they made him the manager and gave him sort of a token payment, similar to what happened to Rogers Hornsby in the middle of the 20s. That The, the Cardinals owner, I, I believe it was Sam Breeden, said, well, you're making this kind of money, but we want you to be player-manager. And I, I believe he got an extra $600 for being the player manager. So the people, uh, unless there was some sort of special circumstance, such as the federal league, their bargaining was pretty limited. Cobb simply was careful with his money, and that's how he ended up being pretty wealthy. But it wasn't as though they were paying him an overwhelming amount of money. Um, it, it just, uh, the people were making somewhat of a pittance. Well, yes, yes, and no, because I know that um, even if a if a baseball player was making a thousand dollars, that was probably more than a lot of you know farmers were making, for example, around that time. And then, of course, you have the um, the gambling acts aspect. You know, all these gamblers were throwing money at them too. So there was that little bit of economic uh, wealth under the table until they got caught. Well, they might have, and that's sort of the. The question, first of all, to address your, your previous remark, that uh, that's always been the uh, conundrum for the players that, yes, even the bench warmers make more than the average Joe, but they're still highly exploited from an economic point of view since they're not in a free free market. So some of those stars are probably being paid well under half of their market value and maybe even as little as 20% of their market value, given what we saw in the free agency era. But on the other hand, just because you're making more money than the average Joe doesn't rule out that you could be exploited. And that's something that fans have a hard time understanding. Um, they see these players making more money than they do. But remember, these players are not average Joes. These people are at the peak of their profession. And they're, and sports being sports, there are millions of Americans who think or have played sports and think, well, if only the coach had spent more time with me, I could have been up there playing with those people, which is the height of delusion. But be that as it may, these people are the very pinnacle of a very large pyramid of players. So they're not average Joes. Second of all, unlike your best plumber in the world, nobody's going to pay to see the best plumber in the world. They might pay a little bit extra to have the plumber come and fix their drain. But these people can fill ballparks. And so they have not only high skills, there's a lot of demand for their skills. So they were probably, in many cases, getting the shaft on that. As far as payment from gamblers, it's hard to know how much players got. How Chase is probably the the exemplar of, of a crooked player, but it, it it's hard to know whether they actually got a lot of payments on their table. I think that was part of what made the White Sox or the Black Sox scandal so notorious was that they actually got some money paid to them. I believe it was on the order of twenty thousand or something that they were going to split up, and they were promised a lot more money off of that and everything. So in this case, they were actually talking, well, I don't want to say real money, but it was money that was significant relative to their salaries. You alluded to your, your co-author. Uh, well, tell me how, I'm always interested when authors collaborate on a project, you know, how did the, the writing break down between the two of you? I mean, did you communicate by email or in person and how did you split up the writing duties? Oh, well, that was actually pretty easy because, um, uh, 
I initially asked yes. him to write a chapter on Hillsdale, uh, a Negro League baseball team. So he just wrote a standalone chapter on that. I wrote a brief uh, chapter in front of that, just talking about blacks and baseball during the 1920s. But he wrote that one chapter pretty much on his own. And then he also wrote some of the appendices talking about the data that's available at the Hall of Fame. So it was pretty much he did this, I did this type of a situation. And then, of course, we, we would talk, we would communicate via email. And also, I go up to lacrosse from time to time to present to students, and we would talk that way. But it, it was it was pretty simple. It wasn't as though we were each writing different chapters. He did review the entire manuscript for me and pointed out things, which I um, went ahead and made changes. Because normally, he's the reviewer for my books. From, oh, okay. So... Uh, so that was a little bit odd because now I didn't have an ally being a reviewer, but they fortunately found somebody else who liked the book and that's why it's in publication. Well, he still had a, had a stake in it because he was involved in the project as well. Right. But he simply couldn't review it, nor could he provide a blurb. Oh, true. That, <laughs> that part is true. You know, I've, I found it interesting with the Negro league um, Hillsdale and, and, and that stuff um, because, because of the color line, the, the black team owners really had, their own players really over a barrel because, you know, if, if they didn't want to play for him, that's fine. They couldn't, there wasn't free agency and the color line was, was set up so they couldn't play in the major leagues. Well, that's certainly true. It's also applicable to the white players because if they didn't want to play for a particular owner, that owner could just blacklist him and suspend mm -hmm. him. So, and there were numerous cases in the 20 where players got suspended for, um, various reasons. The sad case with Dickie Kerr of the Black Sox, and you might recall that he actually won two of the games in the 1919 World Series. He was an unheralded young pitcher. A couple years later, when uh, Seacott and Lefty Williams got uh, kicked out of baseball, Kerr asked for more money, recognizing that they were going to put more responsibility on him, and, and the end result was that they suspended him for being a holdout, and he wasn't allowed to play against he couldn't do semi-pro baseball or anything because he might be playing against some of these outlawed players, which was against the rules. So basically his career got ruined, even though he was an honest player, but he had the temerity to ask for more money. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's near and dear to the owner's hearts. You know, they, they have money and players and they don't want them to mix. I think that was attributed to branch Ricky many years ago. Um, well, Comiskey has kind of a funny reputation. I, some of the sports writers at the time, lauded him for being a generous man, which is somewhat jarring to the eight men out scenario where he's just a, a, a tightwad and kind of a, a real a, a real jerk Yeah, to, and everything. But um, he knew how to curry favor with the sports writers. Apparently, after every game, he put on a lavish buffet for the sports writers and they could gorge themselves. The players didn't have access to that. Um, I believe there's some story also that he provided them with crummy champagne when they won the 1919 pennant. I, I, I wanted to say that there was some complaint about the champagne you know, he ordered for players. Now, he's not the only one doing stuff. If you go into the 1950s, Eddie Gottlieb of the Philadelphia Warriors apparently sometimes um, charged his players for soap or something, and he was running the team on a shoestring. And so there are stories of these owners 
or you'd have them drive around the block. They wouldn't even take a train or something to go play, let's say, in Boston or New York. They'd drive from cars, and in order not to pay for parking, he'd have them drive around Madison Square Garden a few times until it was 6 o'clock, and then the parking meters were off. <laughs> so Comiskey's not the only tightwad out there. Right, and of course, Connie Mack had the reputation of being able to squeeze as much money as possible out of a dime, so... Right, but yet he'd not reviled like Comiskey, even though my guess is he might have been even cheaper than uh, Comiskey, but I guess maybe he did it with uh, a gentlemanly air rather than Comiskey was a rather um, brusque fellow from what I can see. Mm-hmm. And I think you you mentioned in the book that um, during the 1920s, many of the, many of the uh, teams did manage to turn a profit of some sort. I mean, was that kind of unusual for that many teams to do that well? Well, there's... There's a shibboleth that people should remember about profit professional sports. It's uh, beware of false profits. Um, they can rig up the reporting in such a way that they can report fictitious losses, or they can, if they need to, show that they made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The fact is that the Great Depression, it's pretty credible that some of the teams were losing money and they were on the verge of bankruptcy. 1920s, most of the teams appeared to be making some money with um, some exceptions of teams that were struggling. Certainly not struggling in the way they did in the 1920s. They probably almost lost three teams in the 1930s. And there's some evidence that the other owners subsidized them either by sending them players or kind of helping them out one way or the other, or rigging the schedule so that they could get some extra uh, attractive playing dates. In the 20s, most of the people sort of they kind of edged along. I believe the Boston Red Sox were one of the teams that were having financial difficulties. But just because you had a losing team didn't necessarily mean you would lose money because you would have a lower salary base. And also some of the teams in smaller cities, it appears that they incurred less expense for any given win-loss record than the teams in New York. New York seemed to be a fairly expensive place to operate. And plus, you didn't have the travel expenses that you do now. I mean, they went as far west as St. Louis and Cincinnati, and you know, most mostly the teams were tucked in the Northeast. Well, the distances were less, as you point out, but uh, those owners were always paying attention to the railroad mileage. Of course, they mostly went by rail, and the way that worked was that the railroad charged a per person per mile fee. So the further you, the more you traveled, of course, the more you had to pay. The owners also worried about whether the motels provided meals with the um, with the charge, or whether they had to pay the per diem. They also considered whether the train had meals and so on. Um, it's it's kind of fascinating to see that they're really worried about transportation in ways that they don't seem to be as much today. So I'm assuming transportation is a smaller proportion of their expense than it was back back then. But um, it, it is kind of interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, talk about the uh, the profit taxes and capital gains um, during the 1920s. I think you mentioned some figures where the, it just started getting slashed, and that really helped the some of the owners out tremendously. There was a war tax that was enacted during the um, the Great War, since they didn't call it the First World War, since they weren't prescient enough to realize there'd be another World War 20 years later. Um, and that was a 10% tax on tickets above a certain price. And that basically meant most of the, aside from some bleacher seats, everybody had to pay an extra 10%. Um, 
that continued on until I believe 1928. They take it off for about four years and then they reinstate it in 1932 as some sort of a measure to bail out the government or something. The, um, the tax probably had a little bit of effect on the attendance because it, it raised the overall price of going to the ball game. Although because people were fairly prosperous in the 1920s, that minus uh, masked the effect of the, the war tax on that. The owners had not figured out that they could, if they bought a franchise, that they could depreciate the value of the player contract. That comes up after World War II, and that becomes a favorite tax dodge and a very controversial tax dodge. But basically, these owners were probably looking at capital gains taxes to some extent. Now, some of the team didn't have a lot of capital gains because they didn't appreciate much. The Boston Braves were an example. On the other hand, had the New York Yankees owner sold, let's well, actually, uh, Houston did sell out to, to Rupert. There might have been a fairly significant capital gains on that um, on that sale. Yeah, that's true. The, those two were a very interesting pair. Um, I thought it was and speaking of the Yankees, I thought it was interesting that even though. Babe Ruth made the highest salary of his time, and you kind of alluded to this earlier. I mean, his salary was far short of his market value. Um, what do you think his impact was on the economics of baseball since he was such a, a big drawing card? I mean, at home and on the road, he was people were flocking to see him. It's somewhat difficult to measure. It's hard to know how much to attribute to him and how much. Uh, there were other really great stars during that time period, of course, uh, Rogers Hornsby, who, although not a very pleasant man, was uh, a tremendous hitter. You look at a number of the right-handed hitter, it boggles the mind when he had that five-year period where he averaged over 400. And granted, the numbers were somewhat inflated in the mid-20s, but nobody else hit 400 over a five-year period. It, the interesting thing was that after about two seasons, people began to... Um, start hitting home runs. Ruth, of course, in 1920 and 21, basically out-homered entire team. In fact, I believe in one of those years, he out-homered every team in the league. Yeah. But by 1922, you've got um, Ken Williams of the Browns. I believe he hit 39. Hornsby in, in one of those years will hit 42. And then later in the decade, you begin to get people such as, uh, obviously, Lou Gehrig, Hack Wilson in 29 hits his 56, and then Jimmy Fox comes along, and he'll make a run along with Hank Greenberg in the 30s, the 60 home runs and everything. Um, people seem to like the home runs. When we did some regression analysis, it seemed to have an effect on the the attendance, although not a huge effect, but it was there, and it was statistically significant. So it had some effect, but I think it was just also a factor that people had money in their pockets, and the urban areas seemed to be fairly, fairly prosperous, so they went to the ball games. And the owners, of course, having this prosperity could afford to be a little bit slack. They didn't bother to investigate innovations such as electric lights and radio broadcast. So they probably thought they were doing okay, but relative to the movie industry, they didn't seem to have the expansion that the movie industry did. Right, and they were certainly opposed to um, to radio broadcasts. At least the New York teams were until the late '30s. Right, right. They uh, were worried, and it's a legitimate fear that if they broadcast home games, they were usually willing to broadcast radio uh, road games. But home games, they thought, might siphon some of the attendance. Although I often think they were remarkably insecure about the product they were selling. I'm sure if you talk to any baseball fan. Baseball on the radio, it's a poor substitute for being there at the game. 
because you're only engaging the one sense, whereas if you're at the game, you you see you have sight, obviously. You might even have smell because you got the popcorn, the hot dogs, the green grass, and everything. You don't get that on radio. All you get on radio is, is the sound. So it's a pretty poor substitute. And even television in the late 1940s will be a poor substitute for a number of years because if you go to a broadcast museum and you look at those 1948, 1949 television, they'll say they're X number of inches, but they're not measured in the way they're measured today. And they're very small. In fact, they're probably about the size of some of your little iPads that the kids have on planes and things that people are watching their movies while the plane's in motion. But the, the screens weren't very large. A large screen might have been a 19-inch, maybe even a 23-inch television that a bar owner would buy. But the, the picture quality was poor. There's no instant replay. There's no slow motion. There's only two or three cameras, so you don't get a lot of different shots. So television will be a, a rather poor substitute eh, probably until the mid-50s and maybe even later. And then later you do get color. So I'm surprised that the owners were so worried, but on the other hand, it was their financial wherewithal on the line, not mine. True, because most a lot of them were that was their main source of income as well. Well, some well, of them, such as uh, Connie Mack, Comiskey, and then uh, Griffith of Washington, they were the former ball players turned owner. But some of the other owners had deep enough pockets that baseball wasn't their main source of income. Right. In doing your research. Um... What was what did you find was the most challenging part of um, of your research? Well, for this time period, um, getting ticket prices was somewhat difficult because um, the sporting news hadn't didn't bother to publish them as they would right after World War II. After World War II in March, there'd be an issue, a preseason issue, and they would typically published the ticket prices and the number of seats within the classification. And you might have four broad classifications, uh, bleachers, general admission, reserved, and then box. Not not today, of course, the Chicago Cubs, when I looked at their, their uh, ticket thing, I think they had on the order of 30 or 40 different classifications. There were also four or five different levels of the games. So if a crummy team came, you paid less than if it was the Dodgers or the Yankees coming to, to Wrigley Field. Those owners in the 1920s hadn't figured that out yet. So, but on the other hand, they didn't publish a lot of information. It, it's kind of surprising, even at the ballpark, as I, as we discussed in the book, for many years, they didn't have numbers on the players' backs. And they didn't have public address systems. So you, if you were a novice and you just decided to go to Yankee Stadium, yeah, Babe Ruth was probably pretty pretty noticeable. But the rest of the players, unless you really follow the game closely, you wouldn't know who yeah. they were. That's true. They used the megaphones to announce the lineups and the batteries and all that. So, yeah, very, very primitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny to think that some guy was – big megaphone that you see in those old college movies going up and down for third base starting today for the Yankees, blah, blah, blah. And of course the way they did initially assign the numbers for the Yankee players was that they assigned them based on their order in right. the batting order. So that's pretty impersonal. So um, in your research, what did you learn that really, you know, shocked you or surprised you the most when you looked at it and you went, wow, I didn't know that or wow, what a stat. Oh, I always found it somewhat amusing that in a lot of ways, things don't really change. People are pretty similar across the way. Um, 
you're as I said, you're probably roughly the same age I am. You might recall when Jim Bouton ball four yes. came out and all the junior high boys were breathlessly disgusting. Uh, well, I guess I can say this on the podcast, but yes. beaver shooting. <laughs> the uh, infamous part in that book where Mickey Mantle and a bunch of others, they're just acting like, well, acting like a bunch of junior high boys and um, basically being peeping toms. And uh, I went back and reread part of some of the sections on that for another another book. But basically, there was some, I can't remember where it was, but one of the Yankee players was talking about how they were looking into the stand because they're below the fans. And I, I guess if they're looking at people sitting, some of them would, uh, quote, get lucky. And, yes, uh, I remember reading that. Mm -hmm. uh, looking up at the skirts of the women. So in that sense, <laughs> pretty similar to Jim Bowden. I, I don't know, maybe it was, I'm assuming players on the other team did so. I, I, I doubt it, just a, a hallowed tradition of the Yankees. But that was kind of amusing. Of course, I should have realized that, but you don't think of that until it actually kind of slaps you in the face. Mm -hmm. um, then, of course, some of the players had marital problems. I believe it was Joe Dugan was involved in a divorce that makes it into the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to, um, we think of Babe Ruth as a winner with the Yankees and how he turned them into the Yankees that we know today. But it took a while for them, for him to transform them. The team finished, I believe it was third, both in 1920 and Yeah, and then in 21, they win the pennant. They they lose the series in 21-22, and 22, Ruth has a terrible World Series. Uh, and some of the people were beginning to, to get on his case. And then he had those suspensions for barnstorming and so on. So in some ways, it's very similar to what happened to Alec Rodriguez. The people get on him because he didn't perform in the World Series and, and on and on and on. And it's not until the 1923 series where they finally beat the Giants. Ruth hits three home runs in that series. And uh, basically, that he starts the Yankees on their way to being winners. It's not until they win the World Series in 1932 that the Yankees will have a winning World Series record. At that point, they, they won four and they'd lost three, which is sort of uh, a surprise because we just think that, well, they get Ruth and they're just dominant. But he actually, when I, when you think about it, I think in the 15 years he played for him or so they won pennant seven of the year, whereas Joe DiMaggio comes in in 36 after the Yankees haven't won since 32, and the team wins those four pennants in a row by a, a huge margin. They somehow goofed it up in 40 and lost a tight race, and then they come back and win 41 through 43. So Joe DiMaggio is basically, in some sense, he gets them back to winning. And then, uh, then Yogi Berra later in the fifties was on all those teams that, you know, won five straight and then four straight. And, you know, just, he was in, I forget how many world series he was in 12. I know Mickey Mantle was in a, a bunch as well. So definitely yeah. a more dynastic than they were during the time of Ruth. Although we do look at the Yankees as being very dynastic during that time. Right. The, uh, the Yankees of the fifties were, uh, I suppose you could say a marvel of efficiency because they didn't blow the races open that much. They usually win by a handful of games. And ironically, the one time that they did win over a hundred games under Casey Stangle, they get wiped out by the Cleveland Indians in 54. Right. Um, but that was, was just sort of a well-structured team that was pretty good in every phase of the game. A lot of times people forget about how good the Yankees were defensively, especially up the middle. They, they usually had good second baseman, good short stop. And of course, 
really good center fielder starting with um, uh, Earl Coombs and going through DiMaggio, Mantle, and so on. So people kind of forget that the Yankees were pretty good defensively. The thing that's really interesting, though, is that um, Ed Barrell or whoever put the team together starting with 1926, they presage the whole Moneyball story of on-base and slugging because 1926 until um, the early 40s, the Yankees will typically lead the league in slugging and on-base percentage. Usually they, they lead the league in walks. And you might think to yourself, well, that's because they have Ruth and Gehrig, but you subtract Ruth and Gehrig, and the remaining guys are still getting more walks than entire teams, which is pretty amazing. You take off two of them hitters and the remaining six regulars are still out walking people. I never could find a quote where Barrow said that that's what he was looking for, but it was pretty noticeable because the first three pennant winning team, they they didn't lead the league that way. But after that, they were almost perennial that they would lead the league in both slugging and, and on base. So I think that had to be, there, there, there must have been some sort of design to that. George Weiss in the 50s, he didn't seem to put a lot of emphasis on on-base percentage. No Yankee team didn't uh, draw an inordinate amount of walks. But they were just well-built teams. Um, yeah. And they were probably rather boring because, uh, yeah, you had Man on, you had Ford, but they really didn't have a lot of really superior players. They just had a lot of players who were good. Like rooting for U.S. Steel as the old line went. Yeah, and I, I actually think that's pretty appropriate to uh, – comparison because it was a safe efficient well-run team um, whatever you can say about them but they just had enough guys that they could get the job done and uh, it, it was probably not good for baseball but it was okay for for the yankees yeah and of course later on they'll get exposed because they did not jump in and develop a rapport with the african-american players as the dodgers and the giants did so they, they missed a, a chance to extend their dynasty because you think about when they fall apart in 65, 66. Yeah, they had Elton Howard, who, who was a fine ball player, but he was not in the um, the front ranks of the African-American stars. No, and it's true. They had Hector Lopez and, and um, you know, Pedro Gonzalez and none of the big stars. And they missed out on getting, you know, your Mays and Henry Aarons and Clemenes. Like yeah. say, they dragged their feet. I mean, um, Reggie Jackson's really their first superstar. Yeah, yeah. Um, from start to finish, how long did it take you guys to complete this project, the book? Well, to actually get the completed manuscript in the hands of the uh, press, probably less than two years, mm-hmm. partly because I had a lot of the material from before. But then we waited for a year or two. Um, it, it just took a while for it to go through the publisher for reasons I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, had intended the book would be out a year and a half earlier, but it just uh, didn't come out that way. <laughs> um, once I started using the congressional stuff, some of the books came out almost on a yearly basis. Yeah. But I wouldn't recommend that. That was just a happenstance. Well, here's the part of the interview where I ask you what I've missed. Is there anything you'd like to add about the book that you know we haven't discussed yet? Well, we haven't discussed much of uh, Judge Landis, and I suppose we should probably devote a few minutes True. to him because he's True. certainly a larger-life character. Um, I was asked to write a screenplay based on the book. It didn't go anywhere, but it was fun to do. And they were the uh, the gentleman asked who would be somebody that would be good to play Landis, and I often think Charleston Heston would be great. 
although he wouldn't say set my let my players free or whatever like he does when he mows it because <laughs> in this case he would have been keeping my players enslaved but landis is a very colorful character um Ruth and Landis both loved power, but to Ruth, power was the power to knock baseball over the stand, whereas for Landis, it was the power to make or break people. Right. I think he liked having that power. and uh, He was very flamboyant. He, he fined Standard Oil millions of dollars back when a million dollars, that they would say a million dollars, and that promptly got reversed on by an upper court. But he got, he got the headlines, and he also looks like and acts like an Old Testament prophet. And so he, he's very colorful, and as, uh, I think it was Hayward Brown, the, the sports writer, says Landis showed the height that a man could um, go if he if he didn't have the misfortune to be an actor or, or something like that, that, that Landis was a ham and uh, probably missed his calling as an actor. But he was very capricious, and in many ways, um, it's not obvious to me that he saved baseball. I know that a lot of people think that he saved baseball along with Babe Ruth, but I'm not sure that the Black Sox scandal would have been that damaging to baseball because in the 1920s, the turnstiles were clicking merrily, including for the Chicago White Sox, even though there were plenty of rumors out there. This was not, this was almost an open secret that there was something funny about that World Series. But Comiskey had a, a really profitable year in 1920, probably the most profitable year he'll, he'll ever have. And people still go and watch the team and um, people love baseball. Baseball has, as we've seen through our lifetime, baseball has withstood a lot of stupidity on yeah. the part of the players, the owners, and even sometimes the fans. We've seen numerous strikes. We've seen bad behavior. We've seen all sorts of things. Baseball, as well as the National Football League and, and the NBA, I don't know what it would take to get people to stop attending those games. But, uh, but Landis really didn't end gambling in baseball with the banishment of the white uh, black Sox eight there he's going to have to handle gambling situations all the way up until about 1926 including the biggest names in the game ty cobb and tris speaker who were accused by an ex-ball player of uh, not actually throwing a game but they were placing game uh, bets on games and there was a little bit of chicanery there and that ends up with um, Chris Beaker and Ty Cobb being declared free agents. So it's a little known fact that there were free agents back then. And Cobb signed with the Athletic for, I think it was roughly $50,000, which probably doubled his salary. And Beaker signed with the, I think it's the Washington it was Center. The Senator, for, yes. Yeah, for somewhat less amount of money. But certainly they received huge, huge jumps in their salary for this. So it's somewhat of an ironic outcome on that. Um, but the the uh, Tigers and I believe it was the Indians for speaker, their owners agreed to to uh, let those guys go. They were both player managers, and so they just decided that they would uh, relinquish them. It was interesting because apparently John McGraw gave some consideration of signing Ty Cobb, and I, I think, well, that, that would have been a fascinating pairing. Oh, my gosh, yes. It would have uh, – I don't know if they would have gotten along or – in some ways, you say yes because their approach to the game was probably pretty similar. But on the other hand, they're such ego-driven people that it's hard to imagine that you could get them in the same room. Right. That's true. Although McGraw did coexist with Hornsby for one year. And again, that's the same kind of a deal. Hornsby was a cantankerous man at mm -hmm. best. Um, well, but Landis is a very interesting 
interesting fellow. He, um, I don't find him a particularly attractive person, but uh, as I said, he's very flamboyant and he's certainly an important figure in the history of the game. Um, I don't think he was a very good judge or commissioner, <laughs> but um, I think the owners eventually realized they'd created sort of a Frankenstein and they weren't sure how to get rid of him. Right, he had that shock of white hair and, and chiseled figures. He just looked like somebody that, that would be like a... I think I, I mentioned uh, when I did a review of your book, I said something to the effect that um, while Ruth you know, stood the game, shook the game from a power standpoint, um, Landis basically shook the game up by grabbing the owners by the lapels and banging them against the wall. Oh, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, yeah he just... Uh... And he's he's a pretty nasty guy. He um, during the the war he was notorious for sentencing sentencing some of the labor radicals and anarchists to pretty hefty prison sentences based on pretty flimsy outcome. And I'm not a particularly uh, bleeding heart type of person, but what he did to some of the wobbly leaders was pretty outrageous and it was pretty unfair. But he got a lot of headlines for that, and he basically said that if he could, he would have killed them all. And that prison was too good for them, in essence. So he he's pretty, um, he's probably not somebody you'd want your child to marry. Hmm. What uh, what lessons can the sports fans and, and history lovers, for that matter, expect to learn from reading your book? Well, from an ethical point of view, um, you imbue people with an inordinate amount of power to get the owner's head with the reserve clause and other um, other edicts they're probably not going to use it in a responsible ethical manner. I, I find a lot of the owner's activity, not only during this period, but even up to, to uh, today to be uh, pretty, uh, pretty questionable. Yeah. And we're seeing that currently with the NFL. Um, people, I don't think were really intended to be imbued with that kind of uh, leverage over other people. Yeah. So that's, um, that's always a little bit disturbing to my point of view. Um, but again, the appeal of the games are such that people will overlook all sorts of outrageous behavior because they love the game. And we see that in college football. It doesn't really seem to matter what kind of scandals are involved. Well, that's true with Ohio state just recently that, that would, you know, well, the Penn state thing, I think is the, uh, the, Penn yeah, state the, is the epitome of, uh, fan, overlooking terrible things. I, I mean, there's just no way around what was going on in that program. And I realized they have a new coach and they have player coaches and players that had nothing to do with it. But you have to ask yourself, is that really what college sports should be? And, and I'm an alum of the University of Oregon. They certainly have their blemishes. So that would probably be the lesson I'd take away is that you can't give people that, that amount of power over other people and expect them to, to use it in an ethical way. Right. So um, looking forward, um, what is um, your next project? Do you have something in the works or are you planning on something? Well, right now I'm revising a book on uh, business ethics through the ages. And there'll be some discussion of ethics of professional team sports. But the other project that I was working on this summer is um, sports in 1950s America. It's an obvious uh, jump from the previous three books, looking at the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball. But this will tie together um, 
well, sports and let's say transportation. So there's a chapter on transportation and how it changed in the post-war period. And of course the people in sports are, are buying tickets and they're traveling a lot. There's also will be a chapter on gambling, 1950s. The only legal gambling aside from some racing tracks was Vegas. And today, of course, you've got out and out overt gambling and sporting events and, and so on that you didn't have in the 50s. So there's a lot of changes going on. There'll be chapters on African-American women and children and always kind of tying it with sports and everything. So it's, it's been fun. There's all sorts of interesting things. It's uh, I lived through the second half of the book, but the first half of the book, I, I wasn't alive. But it's just kind of amusing to see all the different mores of the time. Um, I was listening to some Phil Spector produced uh, music and in the early 60s. There's a song... Uh, I think it's titled "He Hit Me," but it felt like a kiss. And I'm sitting there going, "Wow, they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't get away with that today." But it was a very popular song, and I don't think people gave two two thought to the to the lyrics. They just swallowed it whole. Uh, another one is in the dying days of the passenger train before Amtrak. Uh, one line was so decided they'd innovate, and they they decided to mimic airline stewardess so they they got a, an attractive young lady from their secretarial pool and she started the movie in the observation car and she also modeled so they had this photograph of this woman it must be in the dead of winter modeling a swimsuit to a bunch of these middle-aged guys sitting there with their, their drinks and their cigars in the observation car i'm <laughs> thinking this is so uh, so 1960s it's sort of the Mad Men world from that uh, hbo tv show it's it's, it's completely it's a very different world than what we have today. But of course, history, 50 years from now, they'll look back and think that we're, we're a bunch of goofballs too. It's, uh, I think one of the things you get from history is a humility. Um, foolishness is <laughs> never true. in short supply in, human, in, in human history. But it's fun. It, it's just fun to see that because uh, it's a fascinating period. It, it's not the happy days kind of a situation where everybody's just happy and everything calm and everything conservative there's a lot of ferment going on that will erupt in the ticketees and later very true sports, sports reflects that to a large degree okay we've been speaking with david george serdam who wrote the uh, co-wrote the age of ruth and landis the economics of baseball during the roaring 20s david we really appreciate you taking the time to get on the show today and thank you so much for being with us well you're welcome it was a pleasure being on it it's always fun to do these You've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.